is Jesus really? The New Testament is supposed to be about Jesus, but haven't we discovered other Gospels in recent years that the early church tried to suppress? Hi, I'm Yvonne Prant, and welcome to Bible 805. Today we're going to answer those questions as we look at lesson number six of our Truth and History series. In this one, we're going to talk about the New Testament, plus we're going to have what I think is a very important discussion of the Gnostic Gospels that attempt to tell people all about a different Jesus. But let's look at them and see which one really shows us the Jesus of history. Here are the topics that we're going to talk about in this lesson. First of all, we're going to look at why the New Testament is a reliable historical record of Jesus and the early Christian church. Now, there are lots of other things we could talk about in the New Testament, but for the purposes of our time and study, we're going to focus on the Gospels and what they tell us about Jesus. We could talk about so many other things in the book of Acts. We could spend hours discussing how precise the historian Luke was in the stories that he told, even down to the smallest details of the titles of different government officials and places and all of the sorts of things that make the book of Acts a really fine historical document. But we're not going to do that in this particular one. We're going to, after we do that, we're going to look at some New Testament non-canonical writings, particularly the Gnostic Gospels, because these have become very popular and very well known in the culture today. I do believe that it's important to look at these because in many ways these are much more dangerous than the Old Testament Apocrypha, and I'll be telling you why. I'm going to explain what Gnosticism is, that's the belief system that these so-called Gospels are based on. We're going to compare them with the biblical records in the Gospel. We're actually going, I'm going to read you actually some excerpts from them, and then of course we'll end up with a little bit of application and why it's really important. Now, first of all, we want to look at why we believe we can trust the credibility of the New Testament as a valid historical record of Jesus. Now, if you think back to the earlier lesson that I did on how historians evaluate manuscripts, what I used for many of the examples in that were the manuscripts from the new that we have for the New Testament. Based on the type of paper that, or well, actually it wasn't paper, it was papyrus, the type of writing material that they wrote on, the style of the letters, the artifacts the manuscripts were found with, we can very comfortably date these as having taken place in the early part of the first century and they were written down. Some of them actually during that time we have actual fragments so of copies of things from the 200s or so. Now it's really important that we do date things correctly and not only the manuscripts themselves but we want to look at when they were written and we do that by looking looking at the historical things that are talked about in the New Testament. A key date there, and there are many, many secular historians that verify this, is when the Apostle Paul died. The consensus is that he was beheaded under the reign of Nero in probably 67 or 68 AD. Now, we can pin that date very, very closely. Now, Luke had to be written prior to Acts because it talks about his life and ministry 
prior to his final incarceration and eventual death in Rome. So Acts were probably written sometime in the 50s. And there is pretty good agreement that that was the last one of the Gospels that was written. Now then, another key date is the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now this is extremely important because a lot of people even who study their Bible, who are Christians, who know church history, don't realize how really horrific this was, that it was an absolute terrifying total destruction of the temple and the city. Now what is interesting when you read the books of the New Testament, that no New Testament book, and we're not going to get into huge debates on this right now, Revelation included, makes absolutely no mention of the destruction of the temple. And it is very fair to assume that it had not taken place as yet because it was such a cataclysmic, world-changing, culture-changing, everything-changing event for the Jewish people because this ended the temple. This ended the sacrificial system. This was a very big deal. But there there's no mention of it anywhere in the New Testament, so it's fair to assume that um, this had not happened as yet. Because of that, many scholars, and I concur with this for whatever it's worth, do believe that the entire New Testament was written prior to 70 AD. What that means in connection with Jesus is that the people that wrote about him knew him. All of the gospel writers wrote, if they wrote all of their gospels, if Luke was the last one who wrote in about 50 AD, Matthew, Mark, and John, they knew Jesus. They knew him personally. They were able to write about him very shortly after his death, which took place in approximately 33 AD. This is really unheard of with most other world religions where the founder of the religion, for example, the Buddha, isn't written about until hundreds of years after his death. Very, very different if someone writes a story of someone they actually knew. Now what's also quite interesting is not only the history of Jesus written about by people who knew him during a very short time after his death, but also when we look at secular historians of that time, they mention him. Now, of course, they're not going to talk about him in a positive way because they were not believers, but just listen to some of these. I think they're very interesting. Tacitus, who was a Roman historian, he lived from 55 to 120 AD. He has one of his the passages out of his history. He says, Christus. The founder of the Christian religion uh, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius. But the pernicious superstition, repressed for a time, broke out again, not only through Judea, where the chief mischief originated, but through the city of Rome also. And what he's talking about, this pernicious superstition, is that somehow this Christus rose from the dead. Now, obviously, Tacitus does not believe in him, but he gives us very clear historical facts. He was um, put to death by Pontius Pilate, the procurator of Judea, very clear confirmation of those biblical facts. Suetonius, another Roman historian who lived from 69 to 130 AD, he says, as the Jews were making constant disturbances at the instigation of Christus, Claudius dispelled them from Rome. And we have, um, of course, in the book of Acts, where there were various expulsions from Rome, Aquila and Priscilla had to leave and they linked up with Paul. And so this was something that would be done periodically. We have that 
another reference in um, secular history. Pliny the Younger, he lived from 63 to 113 AD. And his letter, when you read the whole thing, it's, it's, it's really kind of sad because they were supposed to be persecuting Christians because they wouldn't pay homage to, they wouldn't worship the emperor. Now, Pliny was a governor in one of the outlying territories, and he's writing to the emperor Trajan because he, he just doesn't quite know what to do. And if you read his whole letter, he's he doesn't really feel good about what he's doing. But anyway, here's what he says. Um, he says, I asked them directly if they were Christians. Those who persisted, I ordered away. Those who denied they were or had ever been Christians worship both your image and the images of the gods and curse Christ. They used to gather on a stated day before dawn and sing to Christ as if he were a god. All the more, I believed it necessary to find out what was the truth from two servant maids, which were called deaconesses, by means of torture. Nothing more did I find than a disgusting, fanatical superstition. Now, of course, he is no believer, and he isn't particularly sympathetic to them, but here we have some very indirect confirmation of the group were Christians. This is when they met. This is what they did. This is, in many ways, too, how they were persecuted. Now, the next one is rather interesting. This is from Josephus. Now, he wrote a lot of Jewish history. He also had quite a bit in his uh, in his book about James. He writes about John the Baptist. Now, the following passage is called the Testimonium Flavinium. Now, this passage is disputed. A lot of people who are not particularly sympathetic to the Christian faith to say, well, the things just had to be added. They had to be inserted. Well, he couldn't, he couldn't have really said that. Now, I've always kind of had trouble with some of that criticism because how do you decide what in his manuscripts, if, if, if many of them say this, what was added or what wasn't, unless you have a preconception against what he's going to say. Now, let me just preface this too by saying uh, Josephus was, uh, he actually saw the fall of Jerusalem. He lived in the, the late um, the late part of the first century. He was a Jewish man, but he wrote this fantastic history of the Jewish people in Rome. He was not a Christian. He was not particularly sympathetic to the Christians, but this is what he said. I'll just read it. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who performed surprising deeds and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ. And when, upon the accusation of the principal men among us, Pilate had condemned him to a cross, those who had first come to love him did not cease. He appeared to them, spending a third day restored to life. For the prophets of God had foretold these things, and of a thousand other marvels about him. And the tribe of Christians, so called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. Now, make what you will of it, whether all or part of it um, has been added. We don't know what time. But here is a very, er, very early historical document, once again, that talks about when Jesus lived, when he did the things that he did, what at least people believed about him. And the thing that I I want you to hear from this is this is not uh, by any stretch of the imagination something 
cause someone who doesn't believe in Jesus to suddenly say, oh, I believe that Jesus is the Savior. But what I want you to get very firmly in mind is that Jesus did live in the first century. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He died. And whether you believe that it happened or not, many people did believe that he rose from the dead. Now, there's another writer who wrote about him, and this is very interesting, because, again, this is not only someone who was not a Christian, but he didn't like Christians. He was very much against them, and the things that he says are intended to be very antagonistic and very negative towards the Christian faith. Now, what's interesting about them, though, is in a twisted way, they affirm many of the things that the Gospels tell us about Jesus. And um, if people know this was a man named Celsius. He lived in 178 AD. And let, let me just read you what he said. Uh, concerning John the Baptist, he says, If anyone predicted to us that the Son of God was to visit mankind, he was one of our prophets. And a prophet of God? John, who baptized Jesus, was a Jew. And basically he's saying this guy named John, he was a Jew, and he actually prophesied about Jesus. He talked about him. Then on Jesus' miracles, this is what he said. Jesus, on account of his poverty, was hired to go out to Egypt. While he was there, he acquired certain magical powers. He returned home highly elated at possessing these powers, and on the strength of them gave himself out to be a god. It was by means of sorcery that he was able to accomplish the wonders which he performed. Let us believe that these cures or resurrection or the feeding of a multitude with a few loaves. These are nothing more than the tricks of jugglers. It is by the names of certain demons and by the use of incantations that the Christians appear to be possessed of miraculous powers. It's kind of interesting how he attributes it to demonic resources, to demonic power, but he says, well, he, you know, he cured people and he rose from the dead and he fed the multitude with a few loaves. He affirms that these things happened, but he has a different source for them. On the apostles, he said, Jesus gathered about him 10 or 11 persons of notorious character, tax collectors, sailors, and fishermen. He was deserted and, by, and delivered up by those who had been his associates, who had him for their teacher, and who believed he was the Savior and the Son of the greatest God. And then on the crucifixion, he says, Jesus accordingly exhibited after his death only the appearance of wounds received on the cross and was not in reality so wounded as he described to have been. Now, what historical conclusions can we draw from this? Put aside totally just the theological and spiritual implications of the things that I've, I've shared with you. In the search, though, for the historical Jesus... We base our, the foundation for what we as Christians believe on, number one, thousands of manuscripts from the earliest days. We have fragments, we have complete books, we have many, many textual sources that tell us about what we believe to be the true biography of Jesus. They were written by eyewitnesses, written within the time of the, the lifespan of the people who knew him. We have many of the basic facts about Jesus confirmed by secular, very well-known historians. And keep in mind also, these are just the ones that have come down to us. That was a long time ago. And if out of the many sources that have been lost, the many resources, the many things that have been written, if we have this much documentation that not only shows that these things really happened, but that it was important because 
many scholars apparently wrote about it for us to at least have these fragments. Also, too, the basic facts are confirmed by very antagonistic sources. They might want to say they're of the devil, they might want to attribute evil powers to them, but they very clearly say there was a man named Jesus, these are the things that he did, he apparently rose from the dead, and all of these sorts of things at least confirm the historical Jesus. So our conclusion is that the picture of Jesus as presented in the Bible is historically accurate. Now, what you want to do with that, whether an individual will decide to find out more about Jesus, follow him as Savior and Lord, that is a completely separate question. But you must look at the evidence for the historical Jesus and say this person did live, did do the things that the historical documents that we know as the New Testament presented that he did. Now, so then, why is it everybody doesn't believe in Jesus as a savior? Why doesn't why don't, doesn't everybody believe sort of the 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 orthodox Christian faith? The basic facts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection cannot be denied as historical realities, but and here's the thing, they can be given a totally different meaning. And this is what has happened really in the last few hundred years, and it all started out in the scholarly world. We have talked very much about the importance of historical documents, and in the late 19th and early 20th century, there were a group of archaeologists that found a huge stash of documents in what's called the Oxyrhynchus papyri. And these manuscripts dated from the 1st to the 6th century AD. There were thousands of documents. And then there was another group found in what was called Nag Hammadi, which was in Egypt. This was found in 1945. But these uh, documents were not translated until 1977. Now, these documents, and we'll go into detail on them, these are what form what are called the Gnostic Gospels. The big three of them, and there's other fragments, but we have the Gospel of Thomas, that's probably one of the best known ones, the Gospel of Judas, and the Gospel of Mary. Now these have come into the public consciousness through several things. One, um, National Geographic has done a number of specials on things related to them. Elaine Pagels wrote a best-selling book called The Gnostic Gospels, and Dan Brown, in his book The Da Vinci Code, which was a huge bestseller, very big deal movie, this relied on these Gnostic Gospels as their, their view of who Jesus is. Now, the important thing then to understand is we have the New Testament Gospels, and we have these Gnostic Gospels, and that's spelled G-N-O-S-T-I-C. Now, what does that mean? What are they? What makes them different than the ones we have in our Bibles? Let's look at now for a few minutes what Gnosticism is. And this, you know, kind of, you know, have a cup of coffee or something because your brain's going to get a little rattled around on this. But it's very important to understand it. Gnosticism, it comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means special knowledge. Now, Gnosticism has been around a very, very long time. It's quite old. There's a lot of different forms of it. Basically, it's 
there are several things that it's based on. This special knowledge is where one realizes that there's a conflict between flesh and spirit. It's a very, what's called dualistic re uh, religion. It's where if the flesh is bad, the spirit is good. Now, in the whole Gnostic view of reality, that there is an upper, higher level spiritual truth. But there's all kinds of things that get in the way between this higher level truth and humanity. There are what are called emanations and eons, and they separate humanity from the truth. But every now and then, and some of this should be sounding familiar with some of the other religions that we talked about, every now and then great teachers show up to teach their followers the steps to a secret knowledge of truth. And Gnosticism was very, very prominent, particularly in the second century of Christianity, where it claimed that instead of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, they reinterpreted it to be salvation gained through secret knowledge. There was also a belief that everything in the material world was really evil, and only the spiritual world was good. And from that, they went on to teach that the evil God of the Old Testament, he created this world of matter, but all of that was evil, and, and the God of the Old Testament was really mean and horrible. And then Jesus came along as a teacher later to release people from the false views that they had had previously, that Jesus came down to teach people that they have this divine spark in themselves. That's what their true reality is and that is what they just need to do is they need to learn that and then they can be united with the divine. Salvation to the Gnostic comes by knowledge, by self-knowledge. Now, why is it so important to understand the Gnostic thoughts and writings? In many ways, these are far, far more dangerous than the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha might be a little odd and not totally orthodox, but the same God is worshipped. Now, in the Gnostic Gospels, though, in the Gospel of Mary, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Judas, it is an entirely different Jesus. It is a different religion. It has much more in common with religion and cults and Eastern religion and these sort of things than it has to do with Christianity. And it has no historical basis. These are just philosophies that people thought up 100 or 200 years after the time that Jesus lived. But What's dangerous is these Gnostic Gospels, is what they do is they say that they're by people that lived in biblical times. The Gospel of Thomas, for example, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Judas. But we know just by looking at the manuscripts that they were not written in the same time period as the biblical Gospels. We have very, very little manuscript support. And the contents of them are not, we don't have lots of copies of them like we do of the biblical manuscripts. And what I'm going to do now is I'm just going to go through and tell you a little bit about these three key ones. I will actually read you some parts of them and then I'll give a comparison 
of the Gnostic Gospels with the Christian Gospels. One thing too, here's, I forgot to say this, this is why it's so critical too. You hear in the popular press where people, Elaine Pagel says this all the time and, and various people, well, these were just suppressed by the early church because they were, a, they're a di- it's a different view and the early church didn't want people to know the real truth. Well, that's simply not true. They weren't around when the original Gospels weren't written. They weren't written for between 100 to 200 years later. And so there was no discussion. Also, they were not widely circulated. The uh, traditional Gospel manuscripts, there's you know, literally thousands of copies and fragments all over the Mediterranean world. For these very, very little, they weren't spread uh, very far at all. And they were never, ever, ever accepted by the church as a whole. But let me let me tell you a little bit more about each of them. The Gospel of Mary, it was discovered in 1896 in a 5th century papyrus codex. A codex is a book form. You can tell that it was um, put together much later because it's in that format. We have only three fragments, and they're little bitty fragments. They're just little pieces of, of something. It was written between 120 to 180 AD, and we actually have no idea who wrote it. It doesn't have any authorship claimed. It's called the Gospel of Mary because some Mary is is uh, listed in there, and I'll, I'll read you a little bit about that. Then the Gospel of Judas. This was a leather-bound Coptic papyrus uh, document found in the 1970s. We have only one manuscript of this. Remember, three tiny fragments, the Gospel of Mary, only one of this. It was first translated in 2006, and it appears to be, it probably was written sometime in the second century AD. Um, Obviously, it was not written by Judas, but because, again, he's mentioned in it that it has his name. Then the Gospel of Thomas is probably the most well-known one, and this we have the most complete copies of. We actually have three Greek and one Coptic manuscript, and it claims to be written by someone named Thomas. This was uh, found in Nag Hammadi, and it was, there's also a copy at Oxyarhynchus. It, the manuscripts that we have, though, um, are date just back to the 200s to 300s AD. And obviously, the Apostle Thomas could not have written them. They were written by someone who used his name, which was common with false writings. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to read you some excerpts from each one of these Gospels, so-called. But what and what I want to do too, I'm I'm also on the show notes. I will go ahead and put a fairly lengthy piece. I'll attach a PDF. I would really encourage you to read them. You can see how different they are. To start out with, though, I'm going to read you just a short passage from the Gospel of John. And the reason I'm reading this to you is I want you to see how Jesus sounds when he's speaking to his his disciples. And this is from, of course, our Bible. This is from John chapter 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, so that you may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus answered and said, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on you do know him and have seen him. 
Okay, that was from the Gospel of John in our Bible. Now, this is from the Gospel of Thomas, and it starts out by saying, These are the secret sayings that the living Jesus spoke, and Didymus, Judas, Thomas recorded. And he said, Whoever discovers the interpretations of these sayings will not taste death. And Jesus said, Those who seek should not stop seeking until they find, and when they find, they will be disturbed. When they are disturbed, they will marvel and will reign over all, and after they reign, they will have rest. Jesus said, Your leaders say to you, Look, the Father's kingdom is in the sky. Then the birds of the sky will precede you. If they say to you, It is in the sea, then the fish will precede you. Rather, the Father's kingdom is within you, and it is outside you. When you know yourselves, then you will be known, and when you understand that you are children of the living Father. But if you do not know yourselves, then you live in poverty, and you are poverty. The Gospel of Thomas goes on where the disciples say, Do you want us to fast? How should we pray? Should we give to charity? What diet should we observe? And then later on in the passage, Jesus answers and says, If you fast, you will bring sin upon yourselves. If you pray, you will be condemned. And if you give to charity, you will harm your spirits. He goes on in another place, and, and, and it says, Jesus said, Lucky is the lion the human will eat, so that the lion becomes human, and foul is the human that the lion will eat, and the lion will still become human. It would be easy to mock some of the things in this uh, manuscript, but rather than doing that, I think just to stay objective, does this sound at all like the historical Jesus that is portrayed in the Gospel accounts, which we know were written shortly after he lived? I don't think so. But let's go on and let's look at another one of the Gnostic Gospels. This is the Gospel according to Mary. And this particular section starts out by saying, Will matter be destroyed or not? The Savior said, All nature, all formations, all creatures exist in and with one another, and they will be resolved again to their own roots. For the nature of the matter is resolved into the roots of its nature alone. Peter said to him, Since you have explained this to us, tell us also what is the sin of the world the savior said there is no sin but it is you who make sin when you do the things that are like the nature of adultery which is called sin that is why the good came into your midst the very essence of every nature in order to restore it to its roots the Gospel of Mary has a lot of gaps in it, a lot missing, because it is just a fragment, but it picks up where the Savior answered and said, He does not see through the soul nor through the spirit, but the mind is between the two, is that which sees the vision. And then he goes on to say, In an aneon I was released from a world, and in a type from a type, and from the fetter of oblivion, which is transient. From this time on I will attain to the rest of time of the season of the aneon in silence. There's another gap, and then it picks up by saying, When Mary had said this, she fell silent since it was to this point that the Savior had spoken with her. But Andrew answered and said to the brethren, Say what you wish to say about what she has said. I at least do not believe that the Savior said this, for certainly these teachings are strange ideas. Peter answered and spoke concerning the same things. He questioned them about the Savior. Did he really speak privately with a woman and not openly to us? Are we to turn about and listen to her? Did he prefer her to us? Then Mary wept and said, Peter, my brother Peter, what do you think? Do you think I have thought this up myself in my heart, or that I'm lying about the Savior? Levi answered and said to Peter, Peter, you've always been hot-tempered. 
now that I see you are contending against the woman like the adversaries. But if the Savior made her worthy, who are you indeed to reject her? Surely the Savior knows her very well. That is why he loved her more than us. Rather, let us be ashamed and put on the perfect man, and separate, as he commanded us, and preach the gospel, not laying down any other rule or other law beyond what the Savior said. And when they heard this, they began to go forth and proclaim and preach. Once again, we can once again we can note that this is a very different picture of Jesus and the apostles than we get in the historical documents. There's remember there's only one small fragment of this manuscript. We don't know who wrote it. We really don't know anything about it. There were not duplicate copies. The Gospel of Judas is an interesting one. Let me read you a little bit from it. When Jesus observed their lack of understanding, he said to them, Why has this agitation led you to anger? Your God who is within you, and, and there's a big gap there, have provoked you to anger within your souls. Let any one of you who is strong enough among human beings bring out the perfect human and stand before my face. They all said, We have the strength. But their spirits did not dare to stand before him, except for Judas Iscariot. He was able to stand before him, but he could not look him in the eyes, and he turned his face away. Judas said to him, I know who you are and where you have come from. You are from the immortal realm of Barbalo. I am not worthy to other than the name of the one who has sent you. There's much more, of course, that I could read you. And again, I will have the PDFs on the www. Bible805.com website, but I hope just from these few samples that you can see how these Gnostic quote-unquote Gospels are really totally different than the Gospels that we have in our Bible. To compare them, first of all, the New Testament Gospels are based on Old Testament prophecy and theology. The Gnostic Gospels, in contrast, are based on the Gnostic belief system. The New Testament has verified authors. The Gnostic Gospels, we don't know who wrote them, and they're obviously false authors. The New Testament Gospels, eyewitness accounts. The Gnostic ones, no eyewitness accounts. The New Testament Gospels, written soon after the events. The Gnostic ones, written a hundred years and more after the events. The New Testament Gospels, hundreds of manuscripts for each book. The Gnostic ones, one to three manuscripts per book. The New Testament Gospels, accepted by the Church. The Gnostic ones, condemned by the Church Fathers. However, they are very popular in media and novels and popular culture today. But you need to be familiar with them because when you hear about them, you need to challenge the claim that many people make that, oh, they were something that that came out the same time as the regular ones and they were suppressed and all that simply isn't true. Now, let's remember and let's look at why a correct version of who Jesus is and what he did is really important. In John 20, 30, and 31, it says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. The New Testament documents were written to show us that a real Jesus lived in history, in a real place, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, that he died, that he was buried, and that he rose again. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 gives us some additional reasons why it's important that we have a correct text, where it says, 
all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Knowing that Jesus is the Savior and knowing how to live, these two things won't happen if we don't have a correct text. And once again, just to reiterate, we know that the New Testament documents, because of their textual evidence, because of when they were written, because of the number of manuscripts that they have, we can trust them historically. But much false theology comes from popular culture, from movies, from blogs. No matter what these things say, though, go back and check them historically. They teach a false Jesus and a false gospel. When people say different things about Jesus, ask them, where did you get that idea? Now, once again, just because you have the true history does not automatically mean somebody's going to believe that Jesus is a savior or that he's God, but at least base your opinions on what can be historically verified. Now, when you do that, of course, always remember to do it, as the scripture tells us, with gentleness and respect. Now, the next question that we might want to ask is, okay, we know these documents are historically accurate, but how did we get the ones in our Bible that we have? And that's where we're going to go into a lesson on canonicity or how we got the books in our Bible that we have now. That's all for now. Please check out the notes and the other materials that I have on www.bible805.com and please do sign up for the newsletter there. I won't send that out to bug you or to harass you or anything like that. I will just send that out when I have perhaps new notes and other resources that you might find useful. And until next time, I'm Yvonne Prynne, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And once again, I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.